episode of Lions Love by Donkeys podcast. I am your host, Joe, and with me today is Rich. Hi, guys. Um, and uh, Rich is going to this one completely cold, which uh, is interesting. I literally have zero clue what we're talking about today, and Joe refuses to tell me. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or bad thing. Uh, both. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, this is going to be interesting uh, for both of us, because your grandfather was a pretty highly decorated Vietnam veteran, wasn't he? I want to say you're right with Vietnam. That sounds right. Um, I know that he was a retired sergeant major who... He's a Green Beret in the 60s. We're going to assume he went to Nam. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so yeah, he was special forces, um, retired as a sergeant major, and he worked in government for over 50 years. Um, So yeah, I'm guessing Nam, yeah. And uh, my stepfather is a fairly highly decorated Vietnam veteran as well. Um, so this, this one is pretty interesting to me, uh, because I guess, um, as someone who's in college, uh, Rich is also attending college, um, and the current climate in America today, uh, people seem to have this idea that colleges are this bastion of incredibly left leaning, almost militant, um, ideas. And at one time that was true. And that's why we're going to be talking about the student protest movement during the Vietnam war. Uh, and more specifically, we're going to be talking about the shooting at Kent state. Um, and full disclosure, um, the SDS, which I talk about in length, my stepfather was a full fledged member of the SDS and uh, did several direct actions with them. So if I, I did my best to sound as um, uh, as neutral as possible, but it's kind of hard. Um, so call me out if, if you really want to. It's fine. I mean, you're not exactly a neutral podcast, so I wouldn't be too worried about that. Uh, I don't that. know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and uh, so in order to get to what we're talking about today, so you have never heard of the Kent State shooting. Okay, so I want to say I've heard of it. Is it is it where the guy went up the, up to the tower and was shooting at? So that was that was UT, that wasn't was UT. it? Okay, I'm thinking of something. No, okay, no, I haven't heard of the Kent State shooting. So I'm going to show you a photo, and this photo will probably remind you of it. Have you ever seen this photo before? You're so far away. So interesting footnote. Uh, up until this episode, we've been using a uh, a shitty folding like card table, uh, like uh. Sp- really weird like if you were a depressed single person you would eat dinner at this table it was maybe four feet wide and um that was uh, on either side of that where was where me me and nick sat to to the point that um like our mics were almost touching and nate our producer constantly was telling us you need to get further away so uh in the sense of growing up uh the table that we used to play beer pong on which is about two times as long, is now our podcast desk. And it really feels like Rich is on the other side of the room now. Other disclaimer, there's a lot less leg room because the uh, table legs kind of close in front of you. So I constantly try to lean forward and bang my legs into the table. So if you guys hear a lot of banging, that's what that is. Yeah, it's a shit desk. Um, (laughs) Working on a budget here. And also, no, I have not seen that picture before. Wow. Okay. 
Uh, so you're in for an interesting episode. Then. <laughs> um, but to get to the Kent State shooting and the heavy student protest during the time, we have to talk about Richard Nixon. But more, uh, more specifically than Richard Nixon, we have to talk about 1968 when he was elected president. Um, despite how we know him now as a two-faced lying psychopath, uh, during his campaign for president, he was elected on a platform of promising to end the Vietnam War. Um, now, this was not some kind of anti-war platform. This is still Richard fucking Nixon we're talking about. It was more like... Um, Okay, uh, time to pull out, bring our troops home because we have an exit strategy. And until then, uh, that wasn't really a thing. If that makes a lot, of, I know that sounds like an abstract thing to people in the year 2019 of being trapped in a war without end. But um, uh, before Nixon came around, it was kind of just like, yeah, we're just going to keep fighting until the communist goes away. And uh, obviously, that wasn't working. Um, uh, so. This was a message that the the rest of the country could kind of get behind. Uh, uh, the war had grinded on for years at this point, killed tens of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands, if not more, uh, Vietnamese. Uh, so uh, it gave Americans across the country who had been calling for an end to the war some real hope that an end was in sight, well, one way or another, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, two years, we have a pullout strategy, whatever it may be. Um, but you know, then immediately that hope was that was dashed, and it was dashed in the My Lai massacre, which happened almost immediately afterwards. Um, now I won't go in, into details here. I'm sure everybody listening has heard the My Lai massacre, um, and I have uh, an entire episode for that plan later. Just know that U.S. soldiers went into a series of hamlets, which. They were, were also known as villages and killed around 500 unarmed men, women, and children. There was multiple rapes and, and mutilations, and, and it was awful. Um, nobody was really punished for it. Uh, but with those terrible crimes, uh, an overwhelming opinion in America was that in 1969, the war is winding down. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, fast forward a couple of years ago uh, when we were there, uh, when, when we were in Afghanistan, and people were like, oh, the war is winding down we're closing all these bases <laughs> and then robert bales killed 24 people like <laughs> it, it, it was like a blip in the radar at the time and and they covered up me for a very long time but even with this awful shit going on people are like yeah all right all right that's awful but we're still we're still getting out um and that was by and large a part of what became known as the Nixon Doctrine. And part of the Nixon Doctrine was something known as a Viet- Vietnamization, kind of like how they call it Afghanization or whatever the fuck they want to call it. It's, I think they called it uh, putting an Afghan face on the mission when we were there. Sounds nice and racist. Right. And uh, like when we were in Afghanistan and we had to do that, it was like uh, Afghans lead every p- patrol in, in theory. Um, so... In this, in this, yeah, case, that makes sense when you're trying to make a nation stand on its own. Yeah. Uh, so the tenets of this policy meant that the plan was to pivot U.S. forces away from taking the lead in frontline fighting, and said build up the Army of the Republic of Vietnam or ARVN, uh, so they'd become a fully functioning, self-sustained army that could defend their country from the Communist North and the Viet Cong uh, guerrillas. This, of course, would eventually facilitate full American withdrawal and an end to the war. If that doesn't sound familiar, it should. Uh, <laughs> we're still doing that today, and it still doesn't work. Uh, but at the time, the optics were that uh, two Americans that the U.S. had finally cemented an exit strategy, even if it was incredibly flawed. Uh, just a, one example of how flawed this idea was. 
a good example. Uh, so a major strategy uh, of uh, of the war it was to eventually give Arvin a ton of helicopters. Because if, if the Vietnam War has one iconic thing, it is helicopter-borne soldiers, right? Uh, and we knew that uh, Arvin would need these air mobile units to do the same thing the U.S. Army was doing. Uh, so, that, But they had to train helicopter pilots. There were no Arvin helicopter pilots. Um, but in order to qualify for helicopter training, candidates would first have to speed in, speak and read English fluently. You can imagine from a country with its own very distinct culture and uh, outside of that, a very, very entrenched um, French-speaking population that English was not at all remotely um, accessible to them outside of the American forces. Uh, that meant the pipeline to actually get someone trained and then back to the battlefield to be that vanguard of Arvin helicopter pilots took about two years for one dude. Uh, this is not going to be a lightning fast withdrawal uh, by any <laughs> means. Um, so just as people are finally thinking the war is coming down, the draft lo- lottery also started. Uh, now the draft had been going on this whole time. Um, they've been using the U.S. had been using the draft uh, the whole war up until this point, and it was generally kind of easy to get out of it. Um, for instance, uh, all the way back in until 1965, uh, just being married would get you a draft deferment. Really? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, single dudes who were between a certain age, not in college. So it was kind of easy to get out. Um, and that actually, when they came up with those rules, um, there was like uh, almost like the, have you ever heard of the Moonies? Like it's a weird Korean cult where they have um, like group marriages, like 50, 60 people get married at once. That kind of happened. Oh. Because people were just like, well, fuck it. It'll get me out of the draft. Um. <laughs> And then uh, other, another way out of it was uh, enlisting in the National Guard uh, because the National Guard did deploy incredibly rarely. It was something south of 10,000 soldiers. At that point, were they just more of like a stateside disaster type thing or what? Right, which is their entire purpose. Well, yeah, um, but they do, do deployments still. Well, they do now. Yeah. They didn't then. Okay. Um, there was a very, very minuscule amount of National Guard soldiers who deployed to Vietnam. Very small to the point that getting a spot in the National Guard was considered a godsend because it all but assured you were safe. And the National Guardsmen that did go to Vietnam very rarely did anything that could look like a combat job. So you were pretty much safe. Um, This actually caused the National Guard to develop a waiting list. Um, and you could skip ahead if you had college education, uh, because then you could be an officer. Um, there was also a well-known system of patronage where you could get into the ranks of the guard if you just knew the right people. Um, so here's another catch 22 of these developments. One of Nixon's campaign promises was ending the draft. In fact, he made it worse. Um, (laughs) so did he create the draft lottery? Um, it, so he not directly. It was the Selective Service Administration. So, like today, the Selective Service still exists. Like I had to sign yeah. up for it, even though I was already technically enlisted when I did. Um, and it was widely known to be incredibly inefficient at the time uh, because of all the loopholes, mostly. And they figured that the draft lottery would be fair. Um, it picked like your birth date, and the and then it, you got added to a list, and then you got a draft number. And like if some people got draft numbers so high, they were all but assured safety. Um, 
but at the same time, you could still get a college deferment. So that's why it started becoming called a poor man's war, because even back in the day, um, college in America was much cheaper and more affordable, but still, if you were poor and couldn't go to college, you're going to get drafted because you got bumped up through the, through the lottery as the people with uh, smaller numbers than you deferred out. Or just college is not for everyone. Sure. And um, back then, it you had to make it for you or you're going to go visit fucking Vietnam. Uh, so small side note here. Uh, so the draft went on um, all the way until the 70s. Um, the last American enlisted man in uniform who was drafted during the Vietnam War, if you were to guess when he retired, when was it? I actually think I heard something about this. It was just a like n- within the last like ten years, 2011. right? 2011. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, so when when we were deployed, yes. Uh, <laughs> so the same guy who was drafted for the Vietnam War would end up fighting in Vietnam, all the preceding conflicts to include both Gulf Wars and Afghanistan before retiring as a sergeant major. Uh, <laughs> um, to his credit. Um, he obviously he re-enlisted and said it was the greatest choice he ever made. But still, uh, suck. imagine being that guy's soldier and ever complaining. <laughs> like, well, that sucks. Well, I was drafted to fight in Vietnam. Like, uh, <laughs> well, it's 2010. Maybe you should get out. I can just imagine that handshake out the gate. <laughs> right, right. Um, so this is now 1970. All right. Uh, so people are trying to get pretty pissed with Nixon. Um, and then he ordered the invasion of Cambodia, which only widened the war further. Uh, so Cambodia at the time was militarily weak and had a policy of not being involved in the war, which meant the North Vietnamese moved right in and began stationing bases there. Uh, eventually, about 40,000 troops would be stationed there. This led the U.S. launching covert bombing stri- strikes known as Operation Menu, as well as sending the good old CIA in. Uh, I feel like every time we say CIA in this show, it needs to be that fucking air horn, like, burr, 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 burr. <laughs> That would be awesome. Nate. Put in the horn. Uh, <laughs> uh, because we talk about them so fucking much. But uh, so in the in this version of the CIA getting involved in fucking shit up, uh, a Cambodian general no- n- named uh, Lon Nol launched a campaign launched a military campaign which led to a coup against the Cambodian king. Nordham Senohoek, who was uh, at the time pretty uh, communist sympathizing, uh, I guess. It's hard to be a mo- uh, like a, a king and be like, yep, I totally support communists. Because like, you're the first one against the wall, dude. But <laughs> he was allowing the North Vietnamese to pretty much set up shop in his country, which led him to direct confrontation with America. Uh, Noel was a ardent anti-communist and knew Nick. And once uh, Nixon had him in power, he knew he could uh, pretty much do whatever the fuck he wanted because Noel was weak and couldn't kick out the North Vietnamese. But Nixon was like, I can do that for you. So he did. And the invasion commenced on April 30th, 1970. Uh, it's with that, we will go back to the United States. So by this time in the 1970s, the anti-war movement in the U S based mostly through college campuses was thriving. Uh, there was multiple different anti-war groups, but the one we're going to focus on the mo- uh, on the most here is the Students for Democratic Society, or the SDS. The SDS was founded back in 1960 and was one of the main representations of what is now known as the New American Left, uh, which I guess in 2019 is the Old American Left again. <laughs> um, 
They were really the main organizing force for active resistance against the war. Uh, by active resistance, I mean direct actions, uh, such as protest, fighting cops, and getting involved to the extent of firebombing ROTC buildings. That sounds dangerous. Yeah. Um, and if I was to play devil's advocate, um, most of these kids were uh, not kids. They're in their 20s, late teens, um, which is old enough to go to Vietnam if you're drafted. Um, and I can kind of see this. Imagine if they had the draft for Iraq or Afghanistan. There's a lot of people that would see those wars as a direct threat to their survival. There's a lot of people that do even without the draft. Right, as they should. Um, I'm I'm a full proponent of um, actively resisting things that you disagree with. Because you pay taxes to the government, they represent you. Actively, but not violently. Sure. Um, now, I would disagree that um, violence against property is violence because you're not hurting anybody. Um, burning, uh, burning down an ROTC building didn't hurt anybody. Yeah, but I've seen more justice for property than I have for some people that have had violence Me committed too. against them. So, <laughs> and that will be a running thing here, uh, unfortunately. Um, now, another thing they did: uh, uh, the SDS um, motivate people to tear up their draft cards, uh, skip the draft. Uh, people in the tens of thousands fled to Canada and uh, were granted asylum. Um, so the rationale behind burning the ROTC buildings is something I had to look up because that didn't really dawn on me how they thought of these as a target. And I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm just saying this is their rationale. Um, so ROTC cadets represent rich kids, um, generally from military families. Um, now this isn't the case anymore. Maybe it wasn't the case then. I'm just saying this is how they were pictured. Uh, they would go on to become leaders of this war. Uh, without the ROTC, there'd be no more leaders. Therefore, there'd be no more war. Obviously, that thinking is flawed. West Point still exists. So basically, the ROTC is f feeding into the officer corps, is what you're saying. Right. People graduate from ROTC, get their commission as a lieutenant, go on to fight in Vietnam. Um, is that really how that worked? Yeah. It still works like that today. Not uh, from ROTC. ROTC isn't... Or no, that's the, JRTC. I'm, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of like the shitty little high school kids who thought they were like cool. No, no. The, the, these are what those shitty high school kids turn into. Okay. And I'm not shit-talking ROTC officers. I've had several good ones. But I've had several ROTC officers as guests on this show. Um, <laughs> no, no. Now I'm tracking. Now I'm tracking because uh, I, I have looked into like the green and gold and all that stuff and I, yeah, I understand I believe, what the I ROTC... I believe Nate was an part. ROTC officer. But, um, good job, Nate. Uh, but... <laughs> What I'm just to put you in the mindset of why they would attack an ROTC building. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying I don't agree with it. I'm just saying this is what they thought. Um, you get rid of the leaders, the war ends. Um, or maybe you discourage people from going into ROTC. Um, one of the places that the SDS was very involved with organizing resistance and demonstrations was Kent State University in the Wonderful state of Ohio. <laughs> uh, um, I am contractually obligated as someone from Michigan to hate Ohio, uh, and I am sorry. <laughs> I actually uh, asked my first sergeant, because he's from Ohio, and he said something about Michigan. I was like, don't you hate Michigan? Yes. <laughs> um, they're the only people that hate Michigan more than people from Michigan. <laughs> so... Uh, SDS activity at the school had always been uh, pretty active. A few years before, the SDS ha had organized a demonstration against the police and military recruitment on campus. Um, much like today, uh, back then, there was 
quite a bit of active debate against the practice of putting recruiters at schools. Um, and it was they actually talked about it in uh, Starship Troopers. <laughs> uh, the protests escalated into a full-scale riot, and about 56 people were arrested. Um, another occasion, student activists attempted to storm the school's administration building, uh, only to get state troopers called on them, and they get the shit kicked out of them and arrested. Uh, as protests tend to be in the 60s uh, and 70s. So it goes without saying that Kensington Campus was uh, rife for some unrest after Nixon went back on his campaign promises time and time again. Uh, and it began literally one day after Nixon announced the invasion of Cambodia. That's uh, really impressive when you think about it. This is like the only way they could organize back then was through word of mouth and like flyers. <laughs> but like it's literally the next day. There wasn't even time for flyers. Well, I mean, they probably were already fed up with, you know, a lot oh, of things yes, and just absolutely. this was just the tipping point or something like that. And the, you're going to see um, through the rest of this episode, there there's several moments of like, this is the breaking point for the student resistance and the student um, active resistance. And even more so after the events at Kent State. Not that it changed anything, unfortunately. Uh, so on Friday, May 1st, 1970, about 500 students gathered uh, in a protest in an area what is known as the Commons. It's uh, kind of a grassy knoll type area where it was open and large, so protests attended to gather there. Um, it wasn't anything major. Uh, they gathered uh, in between classes and dispersed once classes began again at 1 p.m. The SDS and other student groups planned for further demonstrations. Uh, but soon students were getting angrier and angrier, and they were being lied to. They, they felt betrayed, and they were saying that the next step was to bring the war home. Uh, history students uh, began burning copies of the Constitution because they believed that Nixon had killed it when, uh, and it deserved a funeral pyre. People began to hang posters that asked, quote, why is the ROTC building still standing? Uh, the protesters dispersed. Uh, they didn't go back home this time. They went into town, and uh, they decided to settle the and to do some good old-fashioned vandalism. Uh, this is where things uh, like throwing bottles at cops, breaking store windows, and eventually someone lit a bonfire in the middle of the town. Um, though, this is where things start to get a little hazy on who was a student and who wasn't, because the vast majority of the vandalism was not done by kids from the school. Um, now, the SDS was also not just full of students. It was just full of people. But people like bikers and local homeless population began uh, to join in on the mayhem, which led to looting and stuff like that. Hey, um, it's all in good fun, man. Yeah, uh, why not? And soon the entire Kent police force was called in and told them to cut that shit out. Uh, the next day, I mean, the, the, the actual protesters from the school showed up and... Um, Try to help them clean up, like do, clean up some of the damage, and nobody trusted them. Uh, but at the same time, the local community had pretty much just lost their minds. Uh, businesses are reporting that communist students had joined forces with radical revolutionaries to destroy the city and the university itself. Other businesses said people had threatened them uh, that if they didn't put up anti-war protests uh, posters in their storefronts, they'd be destroyed. Rumors began to filter to the police of students with arms caches that planned to spike the city's water with LSD. <laughs> Oh, no. First, how fucking sweet would that be? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just happen to have a nice, tall, cool glass of water. Now the walls are melting. <laughs> I mean, there was even some, like, absurd shit of, like, uh, underground tunnels that crisscrossed across town. 
Uh, all of these were, of course, uh, booby-trapped with explosives to level everything. <laughs> like, the whole concept is fucking stupid. <laughs> uh, it sounds like a fun, like, LARPing session or something. Right, but it's all taking part between, like, confused old people who live just off campus. <laughs> uh, obviously, none of this is true. It's nothing but insane uh, fear-mongering about some communist anti-war students. Uh, which, sure. Some of the SDS were communists. They were absolutely anti-war, but they were not like marching down the street with Kalashnikovs and RPGs getting ready to level the fucking city of Kent. That was a complete fabrication. Um, the, the entire concept of these supposed heavily armed student militias was absurd. Uh, but you know who did believe it? The mayor of Kent, a guy named Leroy Santrum, uh, and the governor of Ohio himself, Jim Rhodes. Uh, they met with officers from the Ohio National Guard and agreed that deploying guards into the campus might be a good idea. Uh, the troops were supposed to arrive by 10 p.m. on May 2nd. Unfortunately for the governor and soon for the entire campus and the student population, they did not arrive in time to stop the ROTC building from being set on fire and burning to the ground. Uh, when firefighters attempt to put the fire out, protesters slash their hoses, which, regardless of what side you stand on here, is a dick move. Yeah, it's kind of a dick move. Uh, Firefighters are just trying to do their job. Yeah, and like, <laughs> um, as someone who went to fire academy, you learn that uh, when you drag those uh, hoses into, into houses and stuff, that water is like, it does a, a surprising amount of, of protection. Uh, <gasps> it saves your life. Um, and now I don't know if they actually um, cut the, the hoses while firefighters were inside or if firefighters went inside at all. No firefighters were hurt. Uh, but still, dick move. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure the hoses are are expensive and taxpayer dollars and all of that. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. They're definitely not cheap, and they're also heavy. Those firefighters heavy. worked hard getting them out there. <laughs> so by the time the National Guard showed up, they could only arrest a couple people who were hanging around the burning building. Uh, also, uh, according to one of the students, one student, uh, sorry, according to records, one student was fucking bayoneted uh, by a National Guardsman, and that is something I will say with frightening regularity. Why the fuck did they have bayonets? I have some bad news for you if you're outraged by the bayonets. Why the fuck? <laughs> what? Uh, so what, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later why they had bayonets and nothing else, uh, because they didn't have anything else. Uh, but What did they have the bayonets attached to? Uh, M1 Grand Rifles from World War II. Did they have ammo? Oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> I'm, I'm. Uh, so for everybody listening right now that is shocked for you, I feel really bad for me about to make you this upset. <laughs> um, as you can imagine, having a building burned down on campus infuriated the governor, who uh, went over to the Kent Fire Department and gave an angry speech while pounding the desk so hard it nearly broke and can be heard in the recording. Uh, <laughs> so I think, I feel like, I feel like desk breaking is... It's called for here. Oh, he's not upset about the guy getting bayoneted. So here's this quote. Quote, we've seen here that the Kent, in the city of Kent especially, probably the most vicious form of campus-oriented violence yet perpetrated by dissident groups. They make definite plans of burning, destroying, and throwing rocks at police and National Guard and the Highway Patrol. This is when we're going to use every part of law enforcement in Ohio to drive them out of Kent. We're going to eradicate the problem. We're not going to treat the symptoms. That's what we call foreshadowing. <laughs> um, the governor also said he was going to obtain a court order and ban further pro uh, protests and begin something that looked an awful lot like martial law. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the 
he was never able to get that court order because that's fucking illegal as shit. <laughs> uh, so, in the middle of all this, several students, including members of the SDS, went to downtown Kent and attempted to help pe- people clean up, and nobody would let them because they were not trusted, like I talked about. Um, <clears throat> Now, uh, members of the SDS definitely did take part in some of the vandalism, but there's an overwhelming feeling that within the group that their protest was co-opted by outside forces who broke a bunch of shit and then left so the SDS would get blamed for it. On the night of May 3rd, students once again began uh, to get together in the commons for another rally. Now, uh, the National Guard was camped out nearby, and within 45 minutes, they chased them off with tear gas, and according to the book, 13 seconds confrontation at Kent State, several more students were bayoneted. Again, why the fuck do they have bayonets? Um, so I wish I had a good answer for that other than um, the National Guard isn't supposed to be used this way. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I've got nothing. Yeah. Uh, so the next day on May 4th, uh, another protest was scheduled to take place. The school had actually done its best to shit can the entire rally, passing around 12,000 leaflets saying it was canceled. It wasn't really canceled, and it didn't work. But around 2,000 people, this time mostly students, showed up in the commons near Taylor Hall. Um, and that's when the National Guard showed up. Companies A and C of the 1st Battalion of the 145th Infantry, along with Gulf Troop, 2nd Squadron, 107th Armored Cavalry of the Ohio National Guard, moved in to attempt to disperse the gathering crowds. Um, By late morning, a campus cop named Harold Rice was riding around in a National Guard jeep trying to get rid of protesters. Um, So... What he was doing was pretty much just driving around in circles, reading off a letter from the governor to disperse. Um, he was just trying to help out the National Guard. Uh, protesters responded by chucking a rock right into his fucking face, uh, causing him to retreat. Um, by a around, rock in the face is all that takes? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it was like Kurt Cobain that um, was wearing a shirt one time at a... Um, at a concert that said like rock and roll is as, as awesome as a rock in a cop's face. <laughs> I think it, it probably wasn't from Kent state, but I like to think it was. <laughs> uh, so by around noon, the national guard once again, attempted to chase off protesters with tear gas. Um, it was, but it was a particularly windy day and the tear gas had no effect. Uh, most of the protesters stayed where they were and answered the guards te- answered the national guards tear gas, to the self of rocks and they would pick up the tear gas canister and throw them back. Okay, so was it was it like an out of control violent protest, or were they just at- anticipating that, and so that's what they that fought against? Like it so, seems like it seems like people are just exercising their constitutional right to protest, and the university is overreacting. Pretty much, um, what it came down to is everybody was terrified that this communist horde was going to blow up the city of Kent or whatever other madness they believed. Um, there was no violence except between National Guard and students, and it did not start until a National Guard showed up and started firing tear gas and bayonetting people. Um, students definitely were throwing rocks and tear gas and hurling insults and everything back. Uh, that definitely happened, but the National Guard didn't need to be there. It's crazy how everybody cares so deeply about our constitutional rights until somebody wants to use one. Uh, as long as you do it the right way, which is not saying anything against the government. The right way. <laughs> the right way. <laughs> As in right. Freedom with an asterisk above it. (laughs) Uh, it, It's like going to the zoo and seeing a bald eagle in a cage. Um, 
So once the commons was cleared, the soldiers seemingly gathered in a loose group and began talking. They were probably trying to figure out what was what they were supposed to do next. Uh, eventually, students began to make their way back to the area. Undoubtedly pissed off, these guys just tried to bayonet them. Um, I'd be pretty pissed too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, now, this is the part where I have to break your heart. <laughs> um, after about 10 minutes of getting yelled at and having rocks thrown at them, the soldiers began to make their way back to an area known as Blanket Hill, where they had started on the other side of the commons. That was when, according to eyewitnesses and video, this, the soldiers stopped, turned, leveled their weapons at the protesters, and it is generally accepted now that First Sergeant Myron Pryor, the senior NCO of the group, opened fire. Uh, once he opened fire with his sidearm, the rest of the soldiers around him began to fire volleys down at the unarmed protesters. Of the 77 soldiers in the group, at least 29 were determined to have opened fire. Using 67 rounds of ammunition, they fired in onto protesters for only about 13 seconds. Their volley would kill four and wound a further nine. 20-year-old Jeffrey Miller, 19-year-old Allison Krause, 19-year-old William Schroeder, and 20-year-old Sanda Schlauer died immediately. Holy shit. Uh, Schroeder and Schauer were actually not taking part in the protest. Instead, they were killed in cold blood while walk- walking to their next class nearly two entire football fields away from the guardsmen who opened fire. Schroeder was an ROTC cadet. Jesus Christ, these fucking idiots. Um, now, if you think that was enough to finally chase off protesters, you don't understand how large groups work. Uh, thousands of students flooded on into the commons, which had been turned into a killing ground only seconds before. They were furious, armed with rocks, bottles, and sticks. Surrounded by the dead and the wounded, they wanted revenge. They planned an they planned an all out attack on the guardsmen who were not backing down either. Somehow, I don't even blame them. Me either. Me either. Things were seemingly destined to get worse when geology professor Glenn Frank rushed out into the field with a bullhorn and pleaded with the students to leave the commons, saying, quote, I don't care whether you've never listened to anyone before in your lives. I'm begging with you right now. If you don't disperse, they're going to move in. And this can only be a slaughter. Would you please listen to me? Jesus Christ, I don't want to be a part of this. And um, I guess that's one thing. He had a change of heart and wants to actually save the students. Well, hopefully. A large part of the protests were also faculty. Um, and he actually ran in between the two sides to do this. Um, the full recording can actually be heard in uh, Kent Burns' uh, Vietnam documentary, which it's like a nine parts fucking outstanding. I've but, seen a couple of the parts. Um, he literally put himself in between um, of the two sides. Uh, f- after about 20 minutes of tension, the students finally retreated. Frank's own son, who was on the commons with the students today, estimated that his dad probably saved hundreds of lives that day. Uh, they absolutely were going to attack the guardsmen. The guardsmen were absolutely going to shoot back again. And pure numbers alone said the guardsmen were eventually going to lose that fight and be fucking beaten to death. Sadly, knowing um, some of the people that I have served with um, you, you have your, you have your rules of engagement and you have your, you know, obviously your morals and military ethics and all that stuff. But I, I know so many soldiers that if a person in the leadership position just turned around and opened fire on a group of people without any cause or, or anything, they would turn around and support him without, without any reason. And that's if they weren't given an order, which is a controversy that survives to this day. And we'll talk about it a little bit later. But 
it's generally accepted that Pryor was the first one to shoot, or it's generally accepted by some people that Pryor gave the order to shoot. There's such thing as a lawful and an unlawful order, though. Absolutely. Um, which brings in a lot of, um, how do you say, backlash, but not to the people you'd expect. Um, now, uh, in certain circles, the protesters and the anti-war movement have been framed as enemies of the country, enemies of democracy, quitters, bums, hippies, you name it. The president himself called them bums after the shooting, leading uh, to, I believe it was Allison Krauss's father saying, my daughter was not a bum uh, at, at her funeral. So, so um, it- How fucking, how devastating is that that your daughter died in this just horrible circumstance. And then like, my daughter is not a bum. That's, that's your words. <laughs> like, now, um, instead of saying this is going to get better, let's go to the next paragraph. So there's a lot of immediate reaction uh, nationwide to this, as you can imagine. Uh, the first national student strike took place, which involved 4 million people. Uh, 100,000 people marched to the Capitol, causing President Nixon to be evacuated for his own safety. Uh, there was also, he went to like Camp David. Uh, there was also an outbreak of violence in New Mexico where guardsmen banded students again. Another in Mississippi left, uh, shooting left two students dead. Uh, I believe that time it was the police, not soldiers. Um, so I know what you're saying. These, these guardsmen went to prison or were demoted or something happened, right? I never thought that for a second. This is where I get to say like I do in every episode. Wait, it gets worse. Um, Also immediately after the shooting, the Ohio National Adjutant General claimed his soldiers had been fired on by protesters. There's absolutely zero evidence ever brought forward that proves anyone other than guardsmen fired that day. The only person in the crowd that was determined to be armed was an FBI agent who was in plain clothes and wearing a gas mask. Uh, Initial newspapers actually said a number of guardsmen had been killed or wounded as well. Uh, this is absolutely untrue. And that's actually something I've seen uh, parroted about in cer- certain historical revisionism in circles to this day. Uh, during the four days of unrest at Kent State, one guardsman, uh, a sergeant by the name of Lawrence Schaefer, was hurt enough to ever require medical attention per Ohio National Guard records. The same Lawrence Schaefer uh should be noted that he bragged after being uh the man who shot and killed jeffrey miller he's the body of whom in that famous photo i just showed you uh a gallup poll taken immediately after the shooting should a full 58 percent of people in the united states blame the students for the shooting <laughs> while only 11 percent blame the guard and 31 percent just didn't care of course we always blame the victims the military is never wrong, folks. They never do anything wrong. Right. And this is where I kind of um, butt heads with people that talk about like the weird personality cult we have around the military now is a direct uh, overcorrection from Vietnam. It's like, well, the fucking National Guard never went to prison for Kent State. Nobody went to prison for my lie. Um <laughs> So uh, students returning from Kent State and other universities got a hostile reaction upon returning home. Some were told that uh, more students should have been killed uh, to teach the students the lesson. 
And some students were disowned by their families. Teach a students a lesson for exercising their fucking rights? They did it the wrong way. They did it the wrong way. Against the government? That's what you protest against. You protest against the government. What no. other reason is there to protest? No, Rich. You take to the streets to say how much you love daddy. <laughs> um, That's my next move. Uh, on June of 1970, the Commission on Campus Unrest was established by Nixon and hoped that it would contain the outpouring of anger being directed at him, as well as legitimize the harsh police and National Guard usage on protesters, who Nixon, like I said, openly called bums and communists. Um, in that, he failed. He failed spectacularly. The commission issued its finding in September of the same year. Nixon assumed it would take significantly longer, and it only took him a couple months. <laughs> the commission said, quote, even if the guardsmen face danger... It was not a danger that called them to use lethal force. The 61 shots by 28 guardsmen certainly cannot be justified. Apparently, no order to fire was given. And there was inadequate fire control discipline on Blanket Hill if a fire, if a fire order was given. The Kent State tragedy must mark the last time, as a matter of course, loaded rifles are issued to guardsmen confronting student demonstrators. Yeah, you think? Right. that should have There should have never been a first time. Who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> Fucking loaded rifles and bayonets, are you kidding me? So that was one of the things the the commission also found is like, they're like, okay, well, what riot control training uh, and equipment did the national guard have the answer none none at all they were never trained if you notice none of those units that i named were mps <laughs> they were they had my job they were fucking cav i i can't could you imagine me breaking up a fucking protest no but you were an mp i was an mp unit i mean i i never got any fucking uh goddamn riot control training <laughs> I, I can't. I mean, yeah. So that was like the 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 commission was like. So what tools did you have? And the guard just kind of just shrugged, like the shrug emoji. Um. So of all the so all of this means that there's some must be some kind of le legal repercussion, right? Like if you look at. Uh, the problems with lethal force in America today, if there's a whole bunch of people saying, nope, that was totally the wrong thing, then like they go to court, right? Uh, th that happened, actually. That totally happened. Uh, so in September 1974, eight guardsmen, eight, were indicted by a grand jury. Okay, that's something, right? Now let me read the next paragraph. <laughs> All of the guardsmen said that no order to fire was ever given. Instead, they fired in self-defense. They claimed because the students were charging at them. Now, uh, the prosecution point out correctly that not a single one of the students ever got closer than 60 feet away. And they didn't have lethal weapons! Uh, the average distance of the students who were killed were 375 feet away. They didn't have lethal weapons! The, the judge and the prosecution could not prove that the, guard, the guardsmen willfully intended on depriving the students of their civil rights. That would be the civil right to fucking live. The fuck does that even mean? Uh, the guardsman argument was totally accepted by the court and all charges were dismissed. This is despite the fact the same judge that presided over the case, a judge Batiste, Batiste, I'm probably butchering that. Is it B-A-U-T-I-S-T-E? No. Uh, totally accepted 
that at no point were the Garzans' lives at risk that day, and they'd grossly and unlawfully used force against the students. He still dismissed the charges. What the fuck? Uh, this also may have not been the most fair court on Earth. Uh, afterwards, Paul Mack, one of the jurors, vigorously shook hands of James McGee, one of the guardsmen that was on trial, and said, quote, I'm so glad it turned out this way for you. Now you can go back to your normal life. Disgusting. Uh, now, it, it has not been proven that James McGee actually shot and killed or wounded anybody, but he was one of the people on, tra- on trial. Who fucking cares? That's disgusting. People What's- are dead and wounded. Now, let me go back to that t- tagline, and now it gets worse. Uh, which brings us to the civil case. Uh, the National Guard, the state of Ohio, president of Kent State, and the governor were all sued for wrongful death. Um, one of the people put on the stand at the civil trial was none other than Marion Pryor, the first sergeant who is widely reported being the first person to shoot that day. Uh, on the stand, he said he never gave orders to fire, nor did he fire his sidearm. He also claimed that he had no idea... The students were carrying uh, the students. The soldiers were carrying live ammunition. Something so absurd that actually caused the judge to laugh at him. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, eventually, the case. The first sergeant didn't know what kind of ammo his soldiers were carrying. He didn't know they had ammo at all. What? Which, it, which again was so absurd that the judge laughed at him in court on uh, on record he Come laughed at on him. now uh eventually the case was settled in the amount of six hundred and seventy five thousand dollars for each dead student uh another part of the settlement was the guardsman had to sign a letter of regret mind you nowhere in it does it apologize or accept blame for any part of the shooting it says they quote regret the events of that day which brings us to the last part of our story uh was there really no order to fire given that day uh, because some people say there was. Uh, depends on who you talk to. Dozens of soldiers present on the hill that day report being ordered to fire. Some say they're ordered to fire over the protesters' heads, while others leave that part out. Others say they're told to fire if the protesters kept coming towards them. That order is generally blamed on none other than First Sergeant Pryor, despite the fact there were officers present. A Lieutenant Dwight Sin reports hearing the commander of Golf Troop ordering his soldiers to fire. If you look at videos of the event that day and you read firsthand accounts, it certainly looks like a group of soldiers following orders uh, to do something all at once. The body of soldiers move as one, in step, and they fire as one. Only after the initial volley do they uh, kind of patter out to an undisciplined shot here and there. Actually, George Schultz, the Secretary of La- Labor in Nixon's cabinet at the time, and a World War II Marine artillery captain viewed the film at the Kent State shooting. And rather than support his president's claims that the Guardsmen's shots were random, Schultz said, quote, I know a fusillade when I see one, and that was a fusillade. Uh, Which brings us all the way to 2007, when shooting survivor named Alan Canfora reported that he found a student recording of the time that proves an order to fire was given. Uh, Now, full disclosure on Alan Canfora. Pretty much ever since the events of, um, of the shooting, he has gone on record time and time and time again 
that an order of fire given was given. Um, that's kind of his whole thing, and that's something he has been working to prove. So he's not exactly unbiased. And I've heard the video, uh, which I will put at the end of this podcast for you to judge um, whether you think an order of fire is given. I am unconvinced, um, and I will let you listen to it afterwards as well. A, a, so a 30-minute reel-to-reel tape was made by a student named Terry Strube, which is now known as the Strube Tape. Uh, he was a Kent State comms major who was recording from his dorm window with a microphone. Uh, in 2010, an audio analysis of the tape by experts revealed a male voice allegedly yelling, quote, all right, prepare to fire after four shots from a pistol. This kind of makes sense if you pair it with witnesses uh, accounts that say prior open fire with this pistol before everybody else. But also I have some gripes with the idea that this is an order because that's not an order to fire. That's not drill and ceremony orders at all. Also, I can't hear that in the tape. Well, not only that, like the... The focus on the fact that there had to have been an order to fire seems a little bit misplaced considering firing at all into a group of unarmed fucking citizens is wrong, whether you're ordered to or not. Sure. Like that seems like that seems like you're focusing on the wrong thing there. Well, I mean I get I get that you're trying to like place it on one person. Like if if Pryor gave the order, then that kind of puts the blame on him, but No, it's definitely the blame of all the soldiers. Yeah. You can't play you can't play the Nuremberg defense here. No. I'm uh, the the main reason I'm talking about that is because it certainly looks like an order was given. Because as much as I would totally accept spontaneous firing from a large group of soldiers, because it happens. Um, I've been involved in situations of spontaneous firing where a soldier next to me is firing. I definitely didn't fucking see anything, but I shot in the general direction too. Um, Probably in an actual war zone and not sure. on American soil. Sure. But at the same time, if you look at pictures and you look at eyewitness accounts, this was not spontaneous firing. It was a volley. Rifles were leveled, and then all at once they went off. And only then was it sporadic. That's why I think the the concept of an order to fire is compelling. But I don't buy Canfora's explanation that it was in this video because I don't hear it. Um, I because now um, you have to think there's thousands of people out on this common area thousands of people all of them are pissed the thousands of students are screaming at hundreds of national guardsmen what are the fucking odds that this 1970s era microphone being dangled from a window caught the orders of one first sergeant and nothing else yeah that's that that is like the the Kennedy assassination magic bullet theory of like audio technology i will put it at the end so That'll be up to you to believe that if it's something you really think is being said, I don't fucking buy it. Um, uh, there, I watched a scene. I watched um, several people talk about it. I don't hear what they're saying. It's like uh, that, like the ghost white noise type shit, where people are like, "Oh, I totally heard that." There's fucking subtitles under it. <laughs> That's how your brain works. Um. So, uh, in 2012. 
the Justice Department said that no further action would be taken into the investigation um, based on the Strube tape. Um, but you know who did go to trial after all this? 25 people who were accused of burning down the ROTC building. Uh, they went on trial in the 70s, uh, a couple years after the, um, the building was burnt down. Uh, this included 24 students and one faculty member uh, that were picked out of photos. All of the charges against them were dropped, and the only person ever convicted of burning down the ROT student was not a guy who went to the college at all, meaning more people went to jail for burning down a building and killing four unarmed American citizens. I'd like to say that I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm not surprised either. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's it. There's no happy ending here. Everybody had a, who had a hand in murdering unarmed college kids remains a free man. Um, I could not find anything uh, of like where the fuck these people are now. Nobody has accounts for them. I found like one account of like unnamed Ohio National Guardsmen from the 1980s. Nobody is able to find these dudes anymore. So First Sergeant... Myron Pryor. Pryor. He's a donkey. He's probably... Oh, he's definitely a donkey. I would say the governor is, because he's the one who commanded them to be there that day. They're all fucking donkeys. Nixon's a donkey. Uh, Nixon's a fucking jackass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I I think... Uh, and, and, like, to, I think uh, Governor Rhodes later on said uh, he did not regret seeing the National Guard there, even though he his orders killed four people. Gotta double down, man. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um... So that's our incredibly depressing show today. Uh, <laughs> uh, as always, Rich, thank you for joining me. Um, I have to say one thing. Shoot. This table, this beer pong table <laughs> that you have replaced your little card table it's with. It's the future of the podcast. It's disgusting. <laughs> it needs to be cleaned. There's literally dried beer all over it. <laughs> uh, that's on brand. It's gross. That's on brand. <laughs> uh, so thank you, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Hey guys, like I said before, uh, this episode's going to end with uh, a news clip that shows what is purported to be the National Guard's order to fire on the students. Now, I don't hear it uh, myself. Um, and honestly, since this is a news clip and it has like, uh, like the text over of what the audiologist says is what's on there obviously we can't include that because this is an audio platform but i want you to listen to this and tell me if you hear it if you don't i don't uh i think you're less likely to hear what they want you to hear what they purport to hear without the subtitles that are on the youtube video which is pulled from an nbc uh news article uh news video sorry uh so listen to it tell me what you think thanks for tuning in this iconic image is synonymous with America's internal battle over the Vietnam War. Tear gas and bullets 42 years ago this week at Kent State University. Four students were killed, nine others injured, when Ohio National Guardsmen opened fire during an anti-war protest. Alan Canfora took a bullet through one of his wrists. So I looked down and I could not believe that I had been shot. It was an unbelievable moment, like a nightmare. In a sense, he says he's been wounded again. Just before this week's anniversary of the event, the Justice Department sent Canfora a letter denying a request to reopen the case. And the central mystery since 1970 has always been, was there or was there not an order to fire? 
a federal civil rights case against the guardsmen was dismissed in 1979. The Justice Department now reveals the FBI destroyed an original reel-to-reel recording of the shooting. But a digitally enhanced review of a copy of those tapes has revived the question. Audio engineer Stuart Allen analyzed the tape for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. He claims the fatal volley was preceded by four shots from an unknown source. Fourth gunshot, most important, here's the echo from it. 70 seconds later, Stewart says there's a command to fire, followed by 67 gunshots. Listen again. I don't know about you, but I get chills when I hear that. What do you feel? What a waste. And hopefully, by bringing the truth out here, this will never, ever happen again. The Justice Department calls its own review of the words and sounds unintelligible with no consensus. Allen says this isn't about prosecuting anyone in the National Guard. It's about setting history right. We're seeking healing and we're seeking reconciliation. Can Forrett and his supporters plan to ask the Justice Department to take another look, meet with Ohio's governor, and take legal action, hoping the mystery surrounding the shootings may one day be solved? Susan Candiotti, CNN, New York.